You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Kayan Tara speaks to family members of Malik Ali Malik, a man who died in a car chase with Monroe County Sheriff's Office one year ago. More on that in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB environmental affairs correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald discusses the impact sharks have on coral reefs. That's in the top half of the show. But first, your local headlines. On February 10th at the COVID-19 press conference, Health Director Penny Cottle shared that Monroe County is still in the red advisory category, but says that the rate of community spread is expected to steadily decline. Uh, we do remain red and red advisory this week with high transmission, but there are glimmers of hope, as uh, the mayor talked about, and we continue to see improvements across the county and the state. The decline was starting before last week, before our snowstorms, but it and it is expected to continue. Omicron has shown these steep, fast surges, followed by steady declines, which is what's currently being watched. The Indiana surge started in northern part of the state, and that's really where we're seeing the biggest improvements at the moment. Some of those counties are seeing a decrease uh, by 90% since the Omicron peak. Positivity trends do remain high, but are also improving. County positivity rates across the state range from over 30% to under 20, with everybody being over 15, I believe. I don't know of anybody under 15% at the moment. Our current weekly positivity rate stands at 19.72%. Our daily average of cases is also declining. So all good pieces of information, all good indicators, but we know that no single piece of data tells us the full story. So it's also important to look at those hospitalizations, opportunities for treatments, vaccine and testing opportunities, our vaccination rates, and any other available data. Even the water data that you mentioned, the sewer data, is good additional data for us to have. IU Health President Brian Shockney shared that although the number of hospital patients has been declining, patients are staying longer due to their symptoms. Um, Good afternoon, and uh, we're optimistic about this week's COVID-19 inpatient numbers, and we continue to keep a close eye on our census across IU Health South Central Region. However, as our numbers of uh, inpatients currently on isolation for COVID go down, we're still seeing a larger volume of patients, and this surge 
as you can see here, that are requiring a longer length of stay. So patients go off of our isolation list after a certain number of days, but these patients are sicker than our previous surges. And so they are coming out of the hospital and having longer lengths of stay and coming out of the hospital at a longer period of time. So that's continuing to, while we're seeing the numbers start to come down this past week, it's, it's still not uh, reducing the number of beds we need here in our hospitals in the South Central region yet. Uh, we are hopeful that that will happen soon. So as we look at our COVID-19 admissions since the pandemic began, this has been a sustained surge, but we're continuing to come off of the second highest census we've had experienced through the pandemic. Shockney said that the hospital is hoping to have room in the near future to continue surgeries that had to be postponed due to the high numbers of COVID-19 patients. As many of you know, we have not been able to use this new IU Health Bloomington Hospital to its full capacity since we moved in. And so we are really anxious to get back to that and get out of this COVID surge. Lastly, we are so very appreciative of our patients and their patients in waiting for their procedures to be rescheduled. Some have been rescheduled three times. These are difficult times and our team certainly appreciates the words of kindness and support from those who are coming in and getting and expressing their understanding of getting their, their surgeries and procedures now. Indiana University Chief Health Officer Aaron Carroll said that cases on the IU Bloomington campus are declining with a positivity rate in the single digits. He shared that there is only one student in personal isolation. Carroll also shared that IU is offering students $20 in crimson cash to incentivize students to get their booster shot. We're still encouraging vaccination and boostering. In fact, our uh, incentive program for students kicked off today, where if students voluntarily upload their booster uh, information, then uh, they, they receive $20 in crimson cash. So we'll be talking about that more. We'll be pushing that out, trying to get as many students boosted as possible, trying to get everybody uh, boosted if we can, uh, which is certainly going to be the best protection we have against future surges if and when they come. The next COVID-19 press conference will be held on February 25th. At the Utility Service Board meeting on February 14th, the board heard from Director of Bloomington Utilities, Vic Kelson, about a memorandum of understanding between the Lake Monroe Water Fund and the City of Bloomington Utilities. Kelson said the MOU is for Bloomington's financial contribution to watershed projects. IU Vice Provost of Communications, Kirk White, asked about who administers the Lake Monroe Water Fund. Kelson replied, saying the board is composed of many different stakeholders. The Lake Monroe Water Fund actually uh, is an organization and it has a board that has representation from uh, all of the counties that are uh, in the Lake Monroe Watershed and from a wide variety of, of interests. So it's got forestry interests, farming interests, uh, environmental groups, um, uh, business interests, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the BEDC, uh, Monroe County, uh, Brown County, and Jackson County. And in fact, Jackson County uh, recently uh, participated uh, in the uh, management of the gauge that is on um, the South Fork of Salt Creek, uh, they've recently taken on the, the job of, of uh, being the contract holders for that contract with the USGS. So the idea of this is uh, the, the purpose of the Water Fund Board is to, and the Water Fund itself is to raise money for watershed projects. 
and they're they're starting to spin up right now. So the purpose of of the grant for this year is to help them uh, start their uh, fundraising program, which will be uh, driven by all those other organizations that they're involved with. The board also approved a MOU between Bloomington Utilities and the Parks and Recreation Department to finalize each other's roles at the Miller Showers Park. The next board meeting will be held on February 28th. Up next, WFHB environmental affairs correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald discusses the impact sharks have on coral reefs. We turn to Fitzgerald for more. The overfishing of sharks can cause a trophic cascade that impacts the health of our coral reefs, causing them to bleach and further damages our aquatic ecosystem. Sharks are a flagship species. When they are killed or fished, it causes an imbalance in the marine food web. Less high-level predators, like sharks, cause an increase in mid-level predators, like snappers. These mid-level predators then overhunt herbivores, like parrotfish. These herbivores eat algae. So a decrease in the fish population would thus cause an increase in aquatic algal blooms, which significantly affects coral health. The parrotfish are pertinent to coral health because they eat the algae that would otherwise overwhelm young corals on reefs that are recovering from natural disturbances. This algae then overwhelms the coral reefs, furthering coral bleaching and causing a crisis of aquatic health. PhD recipient Jonathan Rupert spoke with his alma mater, the University of Toronto News Department, on this issue, where he explains the relationship coral reefs have with sharks. Quote, The reefs provide us with a unique opportunity to isolate the impact of overfishing sharks on reef resilience and assess that impact in the broader context of climate change pressures threatening coral reefs. Individual reef sharks are closely attached to certain coral reefs. This means that relatively small marine protected areas could be effective in protecting the top level predators and allowing coral reefs to more fully recover from coral bleaching or larger cyclones, which are an increase in frequency due to the warming of the oceans as a result of climate change, end quote. As well as Rupert, Nicole Couteau is also researching for her PhD distinction at Rutgers University and explains why the relationship between coral reefs and sharks is essential to the aquatic ecosystem. Because of extensive overfishing, unprotected reefs tend to have fewer species at the first and second tiers of the food chain. It's conceivable that this loss of apex predators could have triggered a trophic cascade, but it's too late to tell as it would have been decades ago. Sharks are crucial to coral reefs and vice versa. Therefore, one can only exist if the other is healthy. Reefs supply sharks with prey, nursery habitat, shelter from predators, and even fish to help eliminate parasites from their skin. Sharks provide critical function for the reef, including cycling nutrients between it and the open ocean, removing invasive species, and removing disease-carrying weak fish. Sharks have often been misunderstood creatures, like any other predator in the aquatic ecosystem. Fortunately, many nations have turned to a policy tool known as marine protected areas, also known as MPAs, to help reduce the over-harvesting of sharks. However, not all MPAs are successful. Sometimes nations just use the name of an MPA without taking any sort of initiatives to make that area a safe environment for sharks. 
Conservation scientist Beth Pike, manager of the Atlas of Marine Protection, says, quote, MPAs that are strategically placed, well-resourced, and highly protected from human impact can help protect areas of biodiversity and habitat critical to buffering our oceans from the effects of global climate change, end quote. We can only hope that in the future, more nations will develop efforts towards MPAs and protect our oceans from any further damage caused by humans. From WFHB, I am Sophia Fitzgerald. Up next, we have some recent prison-related news and announcements from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. KiteLine airs each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. The program is available online at wfhb.org or wherever you get your podcasts. On New Year's Eve, Cook County Jail Correctional Officers removed a sick man from a tier inside Division 9, one of the jail's maximum security facilities, according to several men detained there. They weren't surprised when quarantined by staff soon after taking the man away. He had been coughing for days. The jail's health care provider had no plan to immediately test the exposed men for COVID-19. It's just terrible, Davis, one of the exposed men said in a phone interview from the jail. This is like being in hell, not jail, hell. Davis, 59, remembers wrestling with mounting fear and uncertainty as days passed and more people on his tier appeared to be sick. At least six detainees said staff never administered tests to people on their tier during their seclusion. After approximately six days, Davis said that they were let off quarantine without a test. Spokespeople for the Cook County Sheriff's Office and Cook County Health, the jail's health care provider, said that they could not confirm or deny the detainee's account, but maintained that authorities follow guidance from local and federal health departments for testing and quarantines. Tests may be administered to symptomatic people or those exposed to an infected person, and people held at the jail can request testing or reject it, according to a spokesperson from Cook County Health. However, multiple people detained at Cook County Jail said they didn't know that they could request a test, and others expected to be tested after having close contact with someone suspected of being positive for COVID-19. Some of the people most vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis are those incarcerated in the country's jails, prisons, and detention centers. A comprehensive analysis in The Intercept reveals that the climate crisis disproportionately harms incarcerated people. That is especially the case for California, Texas, and Florida, which have the largest incarcerated populations in the nation and face some of the most frequent and extreme impacts of the climate crisis, including floods, wildfires, and heat waves. Most incarcerated people live in spaces that are not air-conditioned. One segregation cell in a Texas state prison regularly has a heat index as high as 127 degrees Fahrenheit. In California last year, the Dixie Fire cut off the electricity in a state prison in Susanville, 
leaving the prisoners locked in their dark and smoky cells, frightened of what might happen if the fire reached the prison. Last summer, Tropical Storm Elsa flooded a Florida state prison, trapping the inmates in their cells as water filled with human waste, snakes, and insects reached their knees before they were evacuated. Flood risk data predicted the flooding there and at many other carceral institutions in the U.S. Davidson College senior Brandon Harris sat in a Maryland courtroom Tuesday as a judge decided the fate of a lifelong friend. Sora Sona already served two years of a 14-year sentence for several first-degree burglary convictions. Now the court was reconsidering that stiff judgment thanks to Harris's tireless advocacy on his friend's behalf. Harris is a 22-year-old Davidson College Belk Scholar and two-time president of the school's Student Government Association. He focused on Sona's life for his semester-long independent study project last year, quote, telling stories of the ignored and forgotten. Harris sent personal letters to every one of Sona's 12 victims. He interviewed the prosecutor, police, and Sona's family. And he got the Maryland governor's permission for Sona to appear from Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland, when Harris presented his friend's lifelong story to the public on Zoom last April. On Tuesday, a judge in Annapolis, Maryland, lifted the rest of Sona's sentence and released him after Harris, Sona's mom, and, by phone from prison, Sona, urged the court to reconsider the sentence. Sona would otherwise have waited until 2034 to be with his family again. Brandon Jackson, a Louisiana man who was in prison for more than 25 years on a non-unanimous jury verdict, was released on parole on Friday. Jackson was the subject of an investigation by the Lens and Al Jazeera's fault lines into the legacy of Louisiana's split jury law, under which people could be convicted of a crime and sentenced to life in prison, with as many as two of 12 jurors voting for acquittal. The law was repealed following a 2018 statewide vote. In 2020, non-unanimous verdicts, which were also allowed in Oregon and Puerto Rico, were ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. But hundreds of Louisiana prisoners convicted by split juries remain behind bars today. The state parole board announced a decision following a brief morning hearing. Jackson's mother, Molly Peoples, who attended the hearing via Zoom and spoke on her son's behalf, threw up her arms in celebration at the news. Quote, I'm blessed, she said in a phone call after the hearing. I'm just so blessed. I don't know how to act. I just want to run down the street and tell the world that my son is free. Jackson, who recently turned 50, was convicted in 1997 of robbing an Applebee's restaurant at gunpoint in Bossier City and stealing $6,000. The jury vote was 10 to 2 to convict. In most states of the country, that would have resulted in a mistrial. In Louisiana, it was a valid conviction. He was initially sentenced to life in prison due to the previous nonviolent drug convictions under the state's habitual offender law, but that was later reduced to 40 years. Non-unanimous verdicts were adopted in the Louisiana State Constitution in an 1898 constitutional convention, near the dawn of the Jim Crow era. The delegates to that convention met with an explicit goal, written in the official journal of the proceedings, to quote, establish the supremacy of the white race. Legal scholars believe that the law was written with the intent of securing convictions for black defendants, 
By nullifying the votes of black jurors, he made up a smaller portion of local jury pools than white jurors. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Kayan Tara speaks to the family members of Malik Ali Malik, a man who died in a car chase with the Monroe County Sheriff's Office one year ago. We turn to Tara for her story, A Car Chase Leaves Him Dead. A year later, the family is still haunted by unanswered questions. When speed surpassed 100 miles per hour in a car chase on April 17, 2021, a supervisor called off the chase of 39-year-old Malik Ali Malik. The Monroe County Sheriff's Office was attempting to arrest Malik on outstanding warrants issued by the Monroe Circus Court. However, moments after the chase was called off, a deputy who spotted Malik in a 2021 Kia Sportage began to pursue him at speeds of about 70 miles per hour on a 50 mile per hour two-lane highway. The speeding SUV stuck a tree head four seconds after veering off Indiana 45 onto Dinsmore Road in Bloomington, Indiana. The car burst into flames. It is likely Malik died instantly due to hypoxia, which is when there is a lack of oxygen to the lungs. This was caused by the flash fire that consumed Malik's vehicle upon impact. WFHB spoke with Malik's family on how they have been coping almost one year after the incident happened. So we weren't together, but I talked to him like 20 times a day. And obviously he's a, a consistent part of our life because we have the kids mm. and he he was a really good guy i mean he was a good guy I'm not saying he didn't make mistakes but he was a really good guy this is the voice of barbara the mother of malik's two biological children malik age 14 and Aliyah, age 11. malik was also father to beyonce barbara's 18 year old daughter from a previous relationship even though malik and her were no longer together Barbara noted that they were amicable co-parents. Losing Malik meant she no longer had that support for her children. Barbara says it's hard to watch the dashcam footage of the incident, especially once the car has blown up. Five minutes after a deputy reported in a radio dispatch that the car was on fire, it was then reported that the vehicle had exploded. Barbara was especially struck by the moment after the car caught fire, and Officer Moxley still had his gun drawn for a few minutes before putting it away. Barbara and Beyonce felt it was obvious at that point that the person in the car either needed immediate help or had not made it. Somebody had approached Officer Moxley and said, there's no way he's alive in there. And he was like, oh, no, he's not. But his gun was still drawn. But he was like commenting on how, yeah, he could smell him. Mm -hmm. You can smell it. Can you smell him? Beyonce, who adds that the footage was difficult to watch, contemplates whether race was a factor in the way the situation played out. I don't know unless they have that struggle, mm-hmm. like fear that they have, and people don't understand that. Not a single it is Black a- or African-American person commented on it. I think that if um, he was white and the such, same situation I don't happened... I they would have chased him. Not even that. I think that if they saw 
someone burning in a vehicle, they would have at least attempted to, you know, get that, oh, you have a fire extinguisher? Can I see that? Like, even if from a distance, you have to do something. I think way more would have been done. But I just feel like to them, he was dangerous. He was scary. I think he was expendable. Well, we don't care about you. And in our mind, you're of no value to our community and therefore your life does not matter to us. Barbara notes that the police should not have continued to pursue Malik in a residential area where the crash ultimately took place. Beyonce was eager to clarify that they do not mean to defend Malik's decision to run from the police, but that the outcome should never have happened. I think a lot of people think that with how we feel about everything that happened, we're saying that he should have been running from the police. I don't think that he should have been running from the police. I wish he would have pulled over, obviously, but given the fact that his car was on fire Mm -hmm. and multiple police were out of their cars with their guns drawn, I almost seem like, well, I can't even imagine what would have happened if he had pulled over. I feel like it could have maybe even ended up the same way. So, Well, they clearly his life was expendable in their eyes. Not to us. Not to he a had lot a family, and, you know, he took very good care of his children. Not everybody does that. Almost a year after the incident, Beyonce still has a lot of unanswered questions. For me, it's like, why if they saw him outside of uh, the car wash place or they had been following him for however long, why didn't they just get him then? I don't care if you have to tase him. If he's such a dangerous felon, uh, which is how they described him to my uh, papa, um, why not just get him right then and there? Also, (laughs) when they got out with their guns drawn, I just I wish they would have accepted the help from the neighbors with the fire extinguisher. Because the fire, I mean, whether he was uh, had passed or not by then, I just feel like uh, a lot of people there said had the cops not been there, they would have stepped in. For Barbara, the grieving process couldn't begin for a while after Malik's passing because she was the one who had to identify Malik's body, plan the funeral, and be strong for her children who had just lost their father. I'm the one who found the dental records. And so I had to have them identified. And then there has to be a service. It's just you can't really fall apart until you have to take care of the things that actually need to be taken care of. And I wasn't a legal wife. Barbara doesn't know that Malik can get justice in this particular circumstance. However, she hopes Malik's story prevents situations like this in the future. I mean, I don't know that he could get justice in this particular circumstance because his opportunity was for justice was kind of taken from him. But being that things are the way they are right now, I do think that they need to make sure that, you know, we're following procedures because they're put in into place for a reason. Generally, they are safety protocols. To me, it was more of an abuse of, of the power that you have. You have a car, you have lights, you have a gun, and therefore you did something that you weren't supposed to do that cost someone their life. He may not have mattered to you, but he did matter to people, and you looked at him as basically expendable. When it comes to justice, what Beyonce wants people to remember about her stepfather is regarding accountability and humanity of each individual. If people are more held accountable and realize that Yes, at the time it was a chase and, you know, he was a criminal. But as soon as that car crashed, he was a human being. 
yeah, I just want everyone to know that everyone's life matters. Despite his encounters with the law, Beyonce always felt protected and nurtured by Malik. Even though him and my mom weren't together, he made sure that, like, he stayed in our life and he still always checked in on my mom. So he was just really good to us. And he was, I feel like, yes, he made mistakes in his life, but his main goal was to make sure that we didn't make those mistakes. Barbara and Beyonce hope other people convicted of minor crimes can get the help that they need. While they don't know that Malik himself can get justice, they believe Malik's story might change the outcome for future situations like this. At the time of publication, a tort claim has been filed. This is a civil claim where a claimant states that they have suffered damages by the person who has committed an act. Due to this being in effect, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office has stated to WFHB they will not comment on the case until the situation is resolved. For WFHB, I am Kayantara. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Sophia Fitzgerald and Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Kayan Tara. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.